from Hama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Professor James Gercalios talking about the amazing story of quantum mechanics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the world of quantum mechanics may often seem daunting and unapproachable. The oftentimes impenetrable equations that are used to describe the physics of subatomic particles may dissuade many from investigating this issue. But quantum mechanics can be readily understood with the right analogies, and it is a science that has changed the world we live in. And joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor James Kakalios. Professor Kakalios is the Taylor Distinguished Professor at the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Minnesota author of numerous scientific and popular works in physics, including The Physics of Superheroes. His latest release, The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics, explores this topic for a general audience. Dr. Kekelius, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and really this is a fascinating book, uh, The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics. And we had you on the program a little while ago when you, on your book, The Physics of Superheroes. I recall we asked you uh, why you wrote the book, and you said oftentimes it's because students have a problem understanding where they're going to apply physics in daily life. I'm thinking that perhaps quantum mechanics is even more of a hard sell for physics students. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, and it's actually not so much... The book isn't so much for physics students or future engineers as it is for just people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a popular account of quantum mechanics because it's also... I think people don't recognize how much they use quantum mechanics every day. As the introduction is titled, Quantum Physics, you're soaking in it. And there really is an amazing story in that scientists were not trying to develop practical applications. They were not trying to develop new types of devices. They were simply driven by their curiosity to understand how the world worked, how atoms behaved, how they interacted with each other, how they interact with light. And in order to understand this, in order to make sense of experiments that seemed confounding, they developed quantum mechanics. A generation later, using quantum mechanics, another set of scientists at Bell Labs invent the laser and a separate group invent the transistor. A generation later still, we have CD players, personal computers, cell phones, uh, laptop computers, DVDs, television remote controls pretty much everything without which my teenage children would say life is not worth living. And none of that is possible without the transistor and or the laser, neither of which are possible without quantum mechanics. So it really has transformed uh, the modern world. It really has. And it continues to do so today. New developments in alternative energy, from photovoltaics to thermoelectric materials, nanotechnology, things you read about in the paper about quantum computers or what's called spintronics coming up next. The next generation, as it continues to transform our society, the scientists working today, myself included, continue to, in essence, dine off of the efforts of a handful of scientists back in the 1920s and 1930s. 
So really, this is a case where investigation into the, the basic physics led to most of the practical applications that exist. Absolutely. It took a couple of generations, but it happened. You know, there were computers before transistors. They used vacuum tubes as the logic elements. So if you wanted to make a powerful computer, you needed a lot of vacuum tubes. They're big and bulky, and they generate a lot of heat, so you have to make the computer large. And so you could have a powerful computer, but it'd be the size of a room. And consequently, the government and maybe a few large corporations would have them. There'd be no reason for such a small number of, of large, powerful computers to link them together into an Internet or a World Wide Web. And so the web itself wouldn't be possible. Really, it was enabled by the fundamental technology, which is the transistor. It's kind of, I use, in the physics of superheroes, I use superhero comic books to illustrate physics principles. Here, I went back to old science fiction, pulp magazines or movies or science fiction comic books. And they predicted that by the 21st century, which we are well into now, that we'd have jetpacks and flying cars and death rays, when what we got were cell phones and laptop computers instead. They thought that there would be a revolution in energy necessary for jetpacks and, and destructo beams, but what we got instead was a revolution in information, which was made possible by the semiconductor and solid-state physics, the development of solid-state physics, which in turn was made possible by the discovery of quantum mechanics. Uh, would you rather have the jetpacks, though? <laughs> you know, personally, I would really love the jetpack. You know why you really want a jetpack? You know, to have the reason we have jetpacks today, and you could take a jetpack to work, provided you only work a couple of blocks from where you live, because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to lift someone up off the ground. And by the time you're done, you know, your trip can only last a couple of minutes at most. If we had lightweight, powerful energy supplies like that, Rather than use them for jetpacks, we could use them to boil water and make clean, safe drinking water to billions of people who lack access to dependable, safe water. And so it would, jetpacks would similarly transform the world, even if everyone's feet stayed on the ground. So not quite in the ways that we hope it would. Right. It doesn't go into so much of the philosophy of quantum mechanics, and it touches only somewhat on the history of it, but I present what I call a working man's view of quantum mechanics. One of the most amazing things about quantum physics is that you can use it correctly and productively even if you're confused by it, which describes every physicist working on it today. But, and so I talk about the basic ideas that you have to just basically accept, that light can be discrete packets of energy called photons, that there's a wave associated with the motion of matter, that everything, matter and light, has an intrinsic angular momentum or spin that can only have certain values. And once you buy into those three principles, and I talk about the experiments that led scientists to propose these weird ideas, once you buy into that, I show how they can be combined and applied to explain why neon lights are red, but sodium streetlights have a yellow tinge, why how you can combine them to make a light-emitting diode, which is the same thing as a solar cell, uh, a transistor, a junk drive, how your computer hard drive works and how magnetic resonance imaging allows doctors to look inside you without the cut of a knife. If you saw an MRI in an old science fiction movie, you'd say, no way, that's just a special effect. <laughs> and yet, here enough, sure enough, here it is, and it's just like a very common diagnostic tool. But it's really something amazing, and it is intrinsically a quantum mechanical phenomenon. 
can you give us a, a working man's definition of quantum mechanics over, over the air here? Well, quantum mechanics is basically the study of how atoms interact with each other, how they behave, and how they interact with light. And this wave-like nature associated with the motion of all matter really is, is kind of like the, the, the foundational idea that you have to accept. I mean, it turns out to be true. There are experiments that verify this wave-like nature, but it's very hard to credit. The idea is that the larger your momentum, the smaller your wavelength. And since anything that we deal with, like people or cars or baseballs, has a lot of atoms, and the bigger the mass, the larger the momentum, then even if it's moving very slowly, the wavelength of this matter wave is less than a trillionth trillionth of the diameter of a nucleus. So you could never detect it. But for an electron, which is obviously a lot lighter, it has a very small momentum because it only has the mass of an electron. And so inside an atom, the wavelength for the electron is about the size of the atom. And so you can't ignore this wave-like property when you deal with electrons inside atoms, where we can safely ignore it when we deal with baseballs and people. And this idea that there's a wave associated with it led Schrodinger to develop his, his Schrodinger equation, led Heisenberg to develop the uncertainty principle, and led another generation of physicists to develop the technology that we enjoy today. So the, this wave-like nature of matter at, at the atomic level leads to very interesting properties. Absolutely. It leads to the fact that the energies that the electrons can have inside an atom can have only have very discrete values, that electrons can't have any possible energy inside an atom. Different atoms have, electrons can have different energy levels, and we can see these energy levels by looking at the emission of only certain wavelengths of light that different atoms emit. And so that every atom, looking at those series of wavelengths, it's like a fingerprint for the atom. And in fact, that's how helium was discovered. We looked at the, the, the spectrum of light coming from the sun, we saw the series of lines of wavelengths characteristic of hydrogen, and we saw a series of lines of wavelengths that was associated with an element that had not been discovered on Earth. And so they gave it the name helium after Helios, the sun god, and it was, we, so we knew that helium existed in the sun long before it was ever discovered on Earth. Until it was discovered, of course, that people would just have to drag the, you know, the giant balloons and the Macy's Thanksgiving parade down the street, and it was kind of a pointless exercise. But, and so this is how, on CSI or other crime shows, when they do chemical analysis of the, the carpet fibers, one of the techniques they use to discover what, atoms, what elements are present is making use of the fact that every element has its own fingerprint. And this is why, again, why streetlights... Uh, sodium streetlights have a yellow tinge to them. Neon has a red color because of the characteristic transitions that can be easily excited. And but this is a bizarre. The fact that electrons can only have certain energy values inside the atom is still, on some level, very disturbing. It's akin to saying that if you're driving your automobile on a racetrack, you can only go in multiples of 10 miles per hour. While you can conceive of a speed like 53 miles per hour, you can never actually achieve that speed. And if a gust of wind were to try to speed you up, it would actually push you and make you go faster only if it made you go from, say, 40 to 50. But if it was going to make you go from 40 to 47, the wind had no effect on your motion. That is just plain out weird. And yet that's the way quantum mechanics tells us 
the electrons arrange themselves inside atoms. And experimentally, that's exactly what is seen. So why is it that only certain discrete transitions are allowed? Again, it goes back to that wave-like nature. If you think, now this is an analogy, it's not a strict, not strictly correct for what goes on inside the atom, but if you think about, say, a guitar string that's clamped at the end, you can have a fundamental frequency, uh, the lowest fundamental vibration, and you can get higher overtones, but you can't get an infinite number of different frequencies. There's only so many where there might be an infinite number of frequencies that can be excited, but only certain ones for any given guitar string can exist. You can't have a wavelength of any arbitrary length. It has to end. The wave has to end at both ends of the clamped string. The, the matter waves associated with the electrons have similar constraints on them so that they can only assume certain values. And each different value corresponds to a different energy. And so from that, from the wave-like nature associated with the motion of the electrons, we get that only certain energy values can be allowed. An oftentimes heard principle of quantum mechanics that probably many people have heard but uh, don't understand is uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I discussed this in the book, and it basically, again, has to do with the wave-like nature. I mentioned a moment ago that the larger the momentum, the smaller the wavelength. And so if I have one perfect wave, then that would be correspond to one single momentum and there'd be no uncertainty in the momentum value of that electron. But a perfect wave extends from one end of the universe to the other. And so I, I, could, I could know exactly what the momentum of the electron is, but I don't have any knowledge of where it might be. If I want to localize it, say, inside an atom, I'll have to add lots of different waves so that they all cancel out outside the atom and all add up constructively inside the atom, but each different wave has a different momentum. So by shrinking my uncertainty in the position of the electron, I necessarily increase my uncertainty, my imprecision as to its exact value of the momentum. And at its heart, that's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle through these matter waves, which leads to a nerdy joke. Uh, Heisenberg was pulled over for speeding on the expressway. And the policeman walks over, leans into the window and says, do you know how fast you were going? And Heisenberg says, no, but I know where I am. <laughs> sure if that one would get by here in Illinois, but... <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned in the book, you've drawn uh, science fiction to help present a lot of the mm-hmm. aspects of quantum mechanics. I'm wondering, has science fiction helped to spurn or lead insights into a lot of sort of the physical problems that exist? Not so much spur. I mean, a lot of the old pulp missed things completely because, again, they were taking existing technologies and extrapolating it. So it's kind of an interesting historical quirk that the very first science fiction pulp magazine, pulp magazine de- dedicated exclusively to science fiction stories, amazing stories, was be- began publishing in 1926 by Hugo Gernsbeck. Also publishing in 1926, Erwin Schrodinger, <laughs> publishing the Schrodinger equation that would lead to the development of modern quantum mechanics. And so just actually within a few months of each other, these two things get published, both lead to the future, one to the future of fantasy with uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, and the other leading to the future of our reality with uh, laptop computers and cell phones. There really was a very profound difference there. And ultimately, we really are, when you look at it, I mean, you look at the iPads, 
and the Zune MP3 players, you look at, at just 1995, Neil Stevenson writes a novel, The Diamond Age, that features electronic books that can display different content depending on what you want to talk about, that you could have flexible paper that you could unfold it and would pick up, sense the Wi-Fi and display the front page of a newspaper and you can look and re- continue to read the articles and then you could fold the piece of paper up and put it back in your pocket. And that was 1995 and now 2010 we have all that. I mean, maybe the, the e-readers are not flexible, but that'll probably be coming soon with organic semiconductors. So, you know, I think one of the toughest jobs nowadays is to be a science fiction writer. <laughs> Try to predict what life is going to be like in the near future because you're in a constant race against scientists and engineers. And it's, and it's actually the, a long history when you go back to Jules Verne. And Verne would take existing technology and just make a, a bit of an extrapolation and assume that certain uh, technicalities could be uh, overcome. And then he ten- turned out to be uh, pretty much on target. I mean, submarines were a pretty amazing thing when Verne wrote. And to have one that could travel 20,000 leagues which is, you know, a measure of distance that it could go undersea without surfacing, was just amazing. He used, uh, Captain Nemo had a different type of electricity. He said, sir, my electricity is not yours, and that's all I will say about it, (laughs) 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 to power the Nautilus. It's not clear whether he's using nuclear power or what, but now we do have submarines that could stay, that could travel that distance or longer, thanks to our understandings of quantum physics. Well, in, in the sort of vein, what are the future applications uh, for quantum mechanics? One of the, the fundamental principles that I, I discuss in my book that one has to accept to understand, say, how transistors or lasers work is that everything has an intrinsic little angular momentum, a spin, as it were. And this one manifestation of this is that electrons and protons and neutrons have little built-in magnetic fields. They're weak, but they're, they're definitely present. And this is, in fact, the the origin of the magnetism in iron and and other materials. Scientists are working. Up until now, we've basically pushed and pulled electrons through our devices by grabbing onto their electric charge using electrical voltages. But we've pretty much ignored this little magnetic field that every electron carries with it. And scientists are now working on the next generation of what's called spintronics that will make use of not just the electron's electric charge, but also its magnetic field. And the goal is, the hope is, to develop materials that will combine data manipulation with data storage on the same chip, so that you're doing the magnetic storage at the same time that you're doing the data processing. And so that will make the computers even more powerful and even smaller. And so there's a lot of, so there's that, There's nanotechnology. We're getting very good at making devices that are no bigger than several thousand atoms. And people are using this or testing this for prototypes of drug delivery systems so that they could deliver, say, cancer treatment drugs only to the cancerous cells and not to the benign cells and thus make the treatments a lot less invasive. And so there's a lot of things that really coming up in the next generation will make things look as different as the last generation did. Look at the TV show Mad Men, and that's only roughly a little over a generation, maybe a generation and a half ago. The world where, you know, you stepped outside of the office and 
you were incommunicado and no one could reach you. <laughs> it's just just not the world we live in now. So the future will be more amazing than we could possibly imagine. Yes, I, I think it will be. <laughs> are living in the world of tomorrow right now. Well, your new book is called The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics, and uh, Professor Kikalis, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that was Professor James Kikalis talking about The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, particle or a wave? (laughs) So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're more particle-like or more wave-like, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Kikalis, ready to play the game? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In keeping with the uncertainty principle, yes. That's exactly right. Yes, very good. (laughs) Okay. All right. Person number one, then, uh, a particle or a wave, it's the uh, actor David Hasselhoff. I think David Hasselhoff is a wave because he's definitely had peaks and valleys in his career and his life. And and the valleys have been pretty low, I would say. Yes, I know. But then again... He did drive an awesome car there for a while. <laughs> that, that was certainly a, a high high, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Well, uh, person number two, a particle or a wave, it's the, the quarterback, Brett Favre. 
He's our quarterback, too, Minnesota Vikings. Uh-huh. I'm going to go Particle just because he seems to be kind of going straight ahead like a bullet and until he hits something that stops it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would think uh, the bouncing around from team to team. Would oh, and it's also the ricocheting. Yes, yeah. very good. Yes, very good. Uh, person number three, particle or wave, Stephen Hawking. He, I'm going to say, can be both, mm. <laughs> right. depending on how you view him. He's obviously got a material aspect to him in his physical body, and yet what his mind is able to accomplish knows no barriers and is able to go the greatest distances. So I would say he he embodies the wave-particle duality. <laughs> He's transcendent in a way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Number four, uh, it's the pop star Lady Gaga. This is definitely a wave, <laughs> uh, simply because you really don't know whether you're up or down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, certainly take you for a ride, though, it seems. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, number five, uh, finally, uh, former White House Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel. Well, if ever there was a particle, there was this man. <laughs> I would say this is someone who all, he will go straight forward and, and will not ricochet, and he will just leave a little Rahm Emanuel cutout silhouette in the wall. <laughs> He goes through. So I would definitely say particle. Okay. Heaven forbid you stand in his way. (laughs) Yeah, right. Jump back and live. He's coming through. (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. Kalis, I want to thank you very much for playing the game. Oh, thank you. Uh, And again, your new book is called The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.